She's had a hard day. Yeah, we will start in chapter 3 at, uh, I believe, verse 16, because that's where we stopped. Um, Solomon's rule has been uh, consolidated here, and then he prayed for wisdom. God answered and gives him wisdom. And uh, that was in a dream that he had, but it was real. And uh, when God gives him wisdom, it's almost like immediately the next uh, section we go to is about him applying the wisdom, which uh, showed that uh, to the rest of Israel that he was one who had wisdom. And uh, from there on out, he had wisdom until sometime later. I guess he had it, but he just never used it later on for a while. But uh, that is for later, isn't it? Anyway, and... What's that? You've been reading ahead. I've been reading ahead, yeah, way ahead. <laughs> okay, well, um, yeah, it's this first one's going to be a demonstration of the wisdom that God has given him as he makes a judgment in that position that he has as being a king and a judge there. And uh, he will uh, come forth with uh, an amazing decision. So let's pray. Father God, you are super. You are a great God, a holy God. And we are adoring you. We worship you. We honor you. You are the one that we look to always. And as we continue in the study of your word and we pray, Lord, that we can get some insights that can be helpful to us individually and be able to uh, produce it in our lives. And Lord, we always are praying for your wisdom and to be able to live out our lives demonstrating the wisdom that you give us. And uh, Lord, we thank you for taking care of us, being a providing God. Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, what you have here are two women who come to the king and uh, they've got a problem. So uh, we'll read this section here. We're familiar with the, with this story. Uh, sometimes you think it's some kind of a parable or something, but it's real. It's a real story that's really happened. So Solomon has been given his wisdom by God, and uh, then he worships God with uh, burnt offerings, peace offerings, and here we are in 16. Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in, a, in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. 
Then the other woman said, No, for the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. The king said, Get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman, whose child was the living one, spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son, and said, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Quite the story. You've got uh, two harlots here, and it's interesting there, isn't it? Prostitution was happening in Israel, and uh, we know that uh, that's never a good thing. But in cases where women found themselves without husbands, uh, without uh, a father, or maybe without a, a brother or somebody to take care of them, and it was hard to make a living at that time, especially for women, they would sometimes reduce themselves to prostitution as their only available uh, means of sustaining themselves. Not that I'm giving credence, but this is the story why there would be prostitutes such as this, even, yes, in Israel. And uh, sometimes you can understand in the state of affairs why there could be polygamy in that day uh, where a man might have more than one wife, and it could be for a reason like this. Uh, anyway, it's kind of interesting that it happens and that uh, Solomon consents to hear the case of these two women who happen to be prostitutes. So he, I think he has a good attitude about it. Um, I think towards the rights of women, regardless of whatever their status is, I think it was he was extremely generous for especially that day for the, in that period of time that he would even hear them out because most time most people would not give them the time of day, let alone uh, a court case in this sense. So the two women live together. This is how they're making their means if they're going to be able to even have any kind of living at all. Um, they each had an infant, and whether it was out of somehow out of the prostitution or whatever it was, they didn't have men with them in the place that they lived. And so, in the middle of uh, the night, one of the infant dies in a real tragic accident as one of the mothers inadvertently smothered the other one. And uh, of course, when that happened, you know, the claim is now brought before the king. And it's really one of deception 
charges that the dead child has been switched for the living one, and each mother claims the surviving infant is uh, really her own. If you were the judge, what would you do? What would they do in our times? Well, if they didn't have DNA, they'd probably do like something like, okay, uh, this baby will spend six months with this mother, and for six months, this other mother will take care of the child, whatever it is. Well, they, they live together in the same house, but um, we know that that is a tough, tough judgment. What do you do with that one? You, you don't have any evidence. It's uh, one's word against another word. What, what would a judge do today, uh, Audrey? I have no idea. How would you how would you approach that? Order uh, DNA uh, testing. <laughs> yeah, but if, if we didn't have that, then blood testing, right? <laughs> I I don't know. That's, That's this is really really hard. So he's going to get to the perfect answer. Is what it is. The judges don't really have to be very wise anymore. No, they use their own. They just do it right here. It's the lawyers that have to be bright. <laughs> Money. Well, Solomon uh, declares his intention to kill a child and divide its body uh, between the claimants. Now, can you imagine what, what somebody must have thought when they heard him say that? We've got this guy for the king? He knew exactly what he was doing, didn't he? <laughs> there must have been a big inhale when he said bring me a sword <laughs> the whole nation goes, bring oh. forth the sword <laughs> what is yeah, this women, right? <laughs> I just thought it was interesting that his first case is women first of all and mm -hmm. prostitutes at that yeah. that sticks out it real really does. well doesn't it yeah. and I got a feel that's how they introduce it then two women yeah who are harlots? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing else before that. That's the way it starts, and it gets your attention because it sure would have anybody back at that time. So he has a, a care, uh, a really concern for, I think, these, you know, women. Well, but they make quite especially a Especially their case. The history of, yeah. you know, at this time, the men were the ones that spoke. Women weren't even allowed to speak. They kind of. So they must have been How did they ever get where they were at? Yeah. Have they there been any kind of maybe smaller I'm courses? They must have had a really good lawyer. <laughs> Something got I don't got know. the everybody, attention. Everybody got involved in this conversation that they got brought there. Yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, I don't know. They must have been pretty loud and noticeable for this to get in front of them. Okay, you're the king. Here's your first case. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you know, he uh, he brings <laughs> forth his uh, his idea of what we're going to do here, and uh, of course, the true mother became evident very quickly. What a test that was, because he knew exactly if one of them would be willing to give up that child, no matter what, if it meant that their life would be saved out of the deal. And so that one comes forth. Solomon knew that, and that's the way that he plays it. That's why he did what he did. And so she has maternal instincts. A real mother of a child, most of the time, right, 
is going to come on there on the behalf of the baby and uh, agree to give him up that he might live. And Solomon somehow came up with that answer that quickly, and he demonstrates what God had given him. And so, quite uh, quite fascinating. I think uh, you know we're brought to the point of testing quite often ourselves. And it's not maybe the issue over a baby, but over our own souls. And, of course, we know that Jesus said that he who wishes to save his life will lose it, and those who lose their life will keep it, will save it. So we had to learn to give ourselves up, to keep ourselves, really, we gave everything to Him. That's really what we did. And so, when you think about that, in doing so, we've proven ourselves that we belong to Him. And He actually has proven that matter. And He's the one that made us die to ourselves. But we, we wanted to give ourselves up. We died daily, but the moment that He brought us to Him, we, we died right there, didn't we? We died. We died at the cross. We sacrificed ourselves for life. Sounds odd, doesn't it? So a little picture there of what it is to be able to sacrifice something up for life. Into chapter 3, Solomon prayed for wisdom. He got it. Quickly happened. It's written the way that it's written here anyway. And it makes a witness to the whole nation. And uh, he administers justice to those people in a very wise way. I like that at the end, the very last verse, 28, when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. What I think is great is when when we are in Christ, we inherit wisdom. We have the wisdom of God. Now, that sh- should grow as we have it, but we got everything that Christ is. Of course, it takes time to develop it, but it's there. And so, it's good to know. That's why he keeps God bringing us that. through the same trial <laughs> over and over and over again until he gets us to That's right. respond. I don't know that wisdom right. is like, you know, the power of Christ. We have the power, mm-hmm. the power of the resurrection. We have the power of the resurrection. Really? <laughs> yeah. Does that mean we can come back to life on our own? <laughs> no, I'm thinking when I'm faced with things, I'm thinking. Really? Can you think of anything more powerful than that? Right? Where is that power? The life of Christ is in you. The life of Christ is in our souls. Wow. Okay, um, we go to chapter 4. And uh, we're talking about Solomon's rule and his kingdom right here very early on. It's getting established now. 
completely and of course we get into his wealth his administration and everything and uh, in verse 1 it says now King Solomon was a king over all Israel and that tells us it's over Judah it's over the uh, southern tribes the northern tribes it's over all Israel they are put together now when Saul had become king, Israel had been made up of very loose kind of confederations. Even though they were a nation, they were not really solid. You had 12 tribes. And a lot of times they were isolated from each other. And uh, even at war, uh, among themselves sometimes. Hard to imagine, but David established something uh, he consolidated that whole kingdom and he put them together and he was the king over all those tribes and they became more centralized in their government and in, of course, in their uh, their religion there. And so... Was that because of the building of the temple? It, yeah, when Solomon comes along now, uh, what happens is that he's going to complete this process that David put forth in making them a, a union. They are consolidated together. That's what David did. But now, when you now have the temple, you have it in a, you know, a one place. Everything is, is there. And so he's going to complete the organizational process. Under David, it wasn't loose, it was all very solid, but now everything is together in a, a more complete way. Uh, so is that what you're talking about there, Debbie? Yeah. And that solidified it all. Once you had the temple there, then uh, that was saying we are one nation completely here. We're under one God, one uh, religion. Of course, they knew that, and they'd kind of been together, but it was, you know, been loose. And David and Solomon now have that kingdom. And so it mentions his officials. Uh, he starts with his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Uh, Elhoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahildud, was the recorder, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies, and Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend. And Ahishar was over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the men subject to forced labor. And I know that very last phrase is going to catch your attention. We'll we'll back up a little bit first, though. Um, Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. Now, normally, uh, a nation would start off with the commander of the army. You have the king, then you have the commander. Here, it starts with the priest. You have Zadok and Abiathar, you know, they, they had been priests, right? But you have Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Uh, but, do you remember Abiathar? He was one of those that had been um, deposed. He wasn't killed like the rest of the guys were. 
but he was deposed. But in this instance, he still ha the name still goes on. Would you say, Debbie? It was Eli's son. Yeah, in that line, yeah, and and of course he asked to be deposed because that was part of. What God had said, you know, you look at the prophecy, and then finally he's, you know, out of that, out of that line. Wasn't he the one that went with uh, the brother, Solomon's brother? Yeah, he was right. the priest for him. Yeah, and that was going to cause a yeah. major problem there, right? Yeah. And so he didn't kill him; he gave him a second chance, but. But he's still named as, you know, in name only. But as far as being the priest and those duties and those actions, so for some reason they do mention the name there and he retains it afterwards, but he is really deposed. He is not so in an active sense. Azariah, the son of Zadok, be the priest? He's the priest. Yeah. And Zadok and Abiathar are priests. Right. Why isn't Zadok? He's the father. Why is Azariah? Well, Zadok, first of all, Zadok and Abiathar, right? They had served together as high priest under David uh, way back in Second Samuel. Okay, so you think uh, he's old? Yeah. Oh. And uh, also... Yeah, there's got to be at least around where David had been. You know, I'm sure, you know, maybe more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, although Abiathar had been removed from his service, and of course he was exiled, and we saw that in chapter two. Uh, he has this title on all the way until his death. Okay. So it, you know, it's that's the reason those names are mentioned there, uh, as he mentions the officials. But he it, these are these are administrators, and he first starts with the the priest aspect. So that's kind of a, a spiritual sense there too in showing. Okay, after the king here is priest. You, you didn't mention Zadok's father. You know, it's not in this section. Okay. Yeah. Um, you get also uh, Zabud, the son of Nathan. He's another, There are like two sons mentioned here of the sons of Nathan the prophet. Some people say uh, it may not be Nathan the prophet. It might be another Nathan. But let's just stick with Nathan the prophet. I really think that's probably what it is. It doesn't have to be, but probably is. Okay, so then how does Zabud become a priest? Well, what you have here, it, yeah, you have in, in that line. Now, Zabud is, and you've got two sons. That's part, uh, part of this deal, right? Uh, he's an instrument of, of settling Solomon on the throne. That's Nathan, right? Nathan is still, you know, doing something there, right? And he had interest enough to promote his sons to chief places as far as honor and trust. And so you have, that's why you have mentioned here, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies. And Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend. So are we saying that Zabud is coming from... Um, a priestly family. 
or a, a line, right? Or a Levitical line. That that would be wise. So really, you've got one who is a deputy, and another one who is uh, a priest. And he happened to be the king's friend, Solomon's friend. So that'd be the next generation down. That'd be Solomon's generation. So they changed yeah. the rules, uh, basically. Because, I mean, if you're a priest, you're a priest. If you're in the priestly line, you're a priest. Yeah. You don't get to be an officer in the military. You're a priest, right? Yeah. So um, how come he's in the military? <laughs> As, He's as a, a priestly deputy. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. I, I guess he wanted and to put him in that kind of a position as an honor of the of the prophet Nathan, um, and and as Nathan, of course, very godly man. I'm not so sure. Um, it you know if you're, and of course you have the what would be high priest, right? And yeah, you're in a, a priestly family. You're already kind of born into that. Right. So I don't know whether this means that he had a special role more than what priests did. And of course, they had so many of them. They would be put into, you know, like you might get one time to be a high, to do what a high priest does, okay? You remember those kind of stories or, or to to actually serve in the temple. I think where these guys would be considered is they have a, a role of... Authority. Uh, yeah, some kind of a, a leadership role as being a priest. A priest is a priest. You have a high priest, but I think there's probably some leadership, uh, especially in a spiritual sense, and coming from the family of Nathan. It sounds like these two sons would be preferred to be uh, in the positions that they're taking to be leading. And so, let's say he's already in being a priest, but I think he's appointed to be in a special role. That's the best that I can think of. sort of looking like the chaplain that's right. the military even today as a chaplain in every spiritual leadership over the military and all their different you know units mm -hmm. and stuff which would think would be a good thing you know the decisions should be made as a commander because Solomon also too he's not a man of war yeah, it's kind of interesting, I guess, but uh, it, these are definitely high positions. And of course, when you think of priest, it, it's speaking of, you know, the nation of Israel is very spiritual in, in the truest sense. And because God is their one true God, and so anybody that is a priest of God, and there you have two roles there. You have, uh, you have the king, you have the priest, and of course, Nathan the prophet, prophet, priest, king, and boy... It's the top of the line of the nation of Israel, and so it's kind of like the the cabinet or the administration. And then he goes on down from there, and uh, he will mention, of course, the deputies, 
He did mention Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. So there's your commander, as far as the military is concerned. And uh, so, key roles. The deputies are mentioned in verse 7 through, uh, pretty well through 18. Are you going to read all them names? No, we're not going to do that. Well, that's Bell's punishment. Uh, I mean, homework for Well, we'll have him read them next That's week. right. This was a Bell's job. And... <laughs> you're probably looking at these names and you're going, yeah. Oh my. Oh my. And I am too. Well, so, it's easy to read them when you don't read them out loud. It is. It is. You, just you can just, I Arkbob. <laughs> Bashan. Ahinadab. Ido. Mahanam. Ahimaz. And that's enough. They definitely are leaders, and they are called deputies. They furnish food, uh, all sorts of the country in which they presided. Uh, one month in a year is what they did, by which means there was always a plenty of provisions at, at court for the king's family. And if you had strangers, people coming in from other nations and such, here's food there, always. No one part of the land was burdened or drained. It was like one month out of the year, and that's and some would say, well, then each one is over each tribe. It doesn't really say that. Uh, they're just deputies that are chosen. It could be, you know, one from each tribe, or he's just picking these guys, and they make sure that they provide for the king and his court and everybody that's associated with that, which is a lot of food. Every day, a lot of meals. Three meals, right? But the uh, they are there are twelve of them. And so that's who's running the nation. And he picks people that would be seemingly right and somehow that Solomon knew them or people would suggest these. But they provided for, and that would be quite a job, wouldn't it? But the king and his family and all associated there need to have to be fed and taken care of there in that sense. So that's how it was done. <coughs> so quite an administration going on there. And we get to verse 20, and it's the extent of Solomon's rule. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Wow. Okay, this is power. This is wealth. This is wisdom. This is where the nation of Israel was at its height. You're talking about things going well. This is quite an extent of the kingdom, and it's very close 
to what was told by God to Abraham in a covenant. Genesis 22, verse 17. Although I don't think it reaches out as far as what God had promised, because I think that ultimately is taken care of in the millennial kingdom to come, where Christ is ruling and reigning. Uh, He says in 17, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now, what we just read in 1 Kings 4 there, in verse 20, it said, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. We're talking millions of them now. Some say four million. Who knows? It is, it's a big, uh, big nation. And remember, God promised that to Abraham, didn't he? He says that back in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Uh, So there is a covenant that God made with Abraham, and you can see that that really has come about all building up to this time, and here we have it. They are living in a very uh, well-mannered way, a very luxurious way, if we might say this. I mean, they're not short of food or water. They're rejoicing. Uh, This is what God means to have for His people. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice if we were like that all the time? Well, for us, you know what? We kind of have that. We have all the food we want, all the water we want. We rejoice. Unless you forget your water bottle. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, as far as the land is concerned, he, He said the river... It starts from the river the kingdom is to the land of the Philistines. The river, that is the Euphrates River. That's the big river. That's what actually separates the east from the west. The Euphrates River. And he says it will go all the way to there. Actually, Solomon didn't have it all the way there, all the way up north, but it was a very large kingdom that he had, and it really had stretched out, and they had lands uh, of other people who were paying tribute to King Solomon. So in one sense, he was kind of like a king of them even, almost like an empire in a sense, but uh, you have the Euphrates River, the people are blessed with great fruitfulness in their families, They have no pestilences, no diseases among them. There are no wars during the time of Solomon. Um, And so the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in that sense. Uh, I think it's going to be fulfilled completely in the person of Christ and whenever that kingdom happens. But it's a great emblem of Christ uh, and his spiritual subjects that he will have, uh, especially, you know, we think it's second coming. Solomon was really a type of Christ, wasn't he? Perfect peace. Uh, it was a time where people 
uh, rejoiced. It was uh, a time in Israel's history that it's a shame that it couldn't have gone on and on. But you see, without Christ, that can't happen. Uh, we've had a picture of that here in this country for a long time, even though there, there have been wars. We know that. We've been involved in a lot of wars. It took war to get our independence. But we know within that time we have lived in a place where our soil has not been invaded physically. Uh, I think that's something to shout about, isn't it? You know, we're not a war-torn country. Or you look at places like Europe and you can see what happened during the war that was 75 years ago. And uh, how they're still torn in a lot of places or other, other places that uh, have had constant war going on in the Middle East. It goes on and on and on. And I think about this right here and I'm going, boy, that is a picture of the kingdom to come. No. And God is saying, I give you the best, and what do people do with it? <laughs> yeah, Debbie. So, his territory, was that all of what had God had promised Abraham? He, he ruled that entire territory? I think in, a, in, in its most of its sense, it is. Although literally, it really didn't go all the way out to Euphrates River. We pretty well think in the same bounds of Israel, but we do see people coming to them and coming to him we and, and we'll read a few verses later uh the peace is on all sides they have no wars against them and i and as they're paying tribute that shows <laughs> that they are recognizing his kingship and no other time uh has israel ever been at that in that situation he must have liked what he was doing uh, well, they're definitely convinced that he has quite, you know, the wisdom. People come from all over to uh, see his wisdom, to experience it. They're eating and drinking and making merry. They have everything that they need there. And also they have a life of peace and joy. Uh, they have a large increase. The, the fruits are, are definitely showing there. Uh, the joy of believers and the kingdom that will come, though, will be much completed, though. It will be totally fulfilled. Now, it says here it goes from the river Euphrates, and so he's almost like ruling to that. That's what had been promised. So, yeah, it's not necessarily all called Israel, but look how far it expands. To the Euphrates, to the border of Egypt, that's far that, far south there they brought tribute that's what it says in 21 they served Solomon all the days of his life and then you know it's uh, not only over Judah and Israel but all people round about him they're standing in fear of him they bring presents they pay tribute to him they acknowledge his superiority over him they never once attack Israel now, what's interesting, it was commonplace back at that time for ancient empires, whenever they would lose a, an, you know, an old king would die. The subject nations would challenge then that nation that they'd been under. They would challenge the new king. And they would have their own raids and to see if there was weakness there. 
And if they could penetrate in there, they, they would do it. And so they would make expeditions and try to, you know, to get their own sovereignty back, maybe even take over there. That was to prove if this new king would have the ability to enforce his reign over them. We see Solomon did not have to do that. David had won over the Philistines and all of the enemies, and that's what God had him to do. And whenever he does have peace, and David was a man of bloodshed, um, he then brought on what is a picture of what true peace is. And Solomon never once really had to fight. I think that is incredible. I mean, Israel's always been under somebody's reign or somebody's rule. And here they are. They're sovereign and they're under the one true God. Solomon, being a type of Christ, Shalom is peaceful, right? So God gave to him a perfectly peaceful reign just to show you what it looks like. Had had the people remained in that kind of spiritual condition, I believe that God would have kept it peaceful. But his overall plan actually comes into play though too, doesn't it? With all of everything that happens after that. But I think what you have is a larger extent um, whenever Christ's kingdom is given. Go to Psalm 72, verse 8. I'm just overwhelmed by what this kingdom must have been like. About as close as you can get to what a kingdom is really supposed to be. Uh, This is the reign. Uh, This is a psalm of Solomon here. He wrote this psalm. And it's the reign of the righteous king. And he says, May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Israel's boundaries were to extend to the river Euphrates, right? So they did, in a sense, but fully, Christ will rule over all the whole world, won't He? Completely. And uh, even Solomon's saying, look in in verse uh, 10, let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before Him. All nations serve Him. Israel really was the empire, wasn't it? Never again until Christ. A picture, though. It's a picture. So, quite an extent of what he had. God did give a promise. It happened. Now, the back to the King's passage. Aren't you overwhelmed by how good God was at this time? Just, uh, just give Him nothing but grace. In verse 24 and 25, we read about all the provisions 
for he had dominion over everything west of the river from Tipshah even to Gaza. That's over on the west uh, near the Mediterranean, over all the kings west of the river. Uh, and he had peace on all sides round about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, north to south, all over, all the days of Solomon. Interesting, isn't it? Absolute peace, absolute dominion over all of that area. And it says they lived in safety. Every man under his vine and his fig tree. Now that's a kind of a phrase that the prophets would use. And it meant that they had, they would have total prosperity. They would never have to worry about anybody taking their land, their fruit, their crops, which happened so often during, remember Judges, for instance, and uh, even up through the time of Saul and even David, you know, they'd get raided. What a prosperity that uh, that he had here. Ideal conditions prevailing in the kingdom. The fact that a man can enjoy the fruit of his own vine and his own figs from his own fig tree. Wasn't socialism. No. That's right. It was his own. And this is abundantly of how they're living. Um and Solomon actually did nothing to make this happen. No, God just <laughs> gave it to him. Just the benefits. Just yep. lavished. He promised this. He said he'd do it. Now, we know that that promise really extends and it really is going to the ultimate right. fulfillment. But he wants to show, here's what it's like. Here's what it is. I can do this. Um, so... There was a complete absence of warfare and a complete absence of economic disruption, which is all they've ever known. You know, you'd have something, then it would get ripped from you. Your enemies would come and take it uh, without any fear of any injury being done. I think there was an absolute peace amongst the people all the way around. I doubt if you saw much murder Probably not. A, I mean, everybody is is prospering at this time and uh, living abundantly. It's you know the type. Look at Jeremiah twenty three five from the prophet Jeremiah twenty three five. This gives us, uh, I think, great blessing in that we see that what God says He's going to do, He does. Sometimes He has to give a little bit of a picture. It doesn't last long. Um, what did I say? Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. This time, it's not about Solomon at all. 
because Solomon is already dead and gone. This is during the time of the prophets, Jeremiah. Solomon's time was like uh, 200 years or so. This is Christ himself. The days are coming. I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. By the word, I think that word for branch there is netzer. Which some claim that that netzer is what we're familiar with as Natzer, Nazareth. Yeah, I don't want to push that, but some suggest that. Uh, but he's the branch, though. He's the branch that's coming from David, isn't he? Your red is king. That's a neat tone, isn't it? I like that. <laughs> hey, you're getting pretty good at that technology. You found it. Or did it just go off? I have a thing that it says... Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm always afraid that's going to happen to me. Somebody like me be up there laughing and make fun of it. <laughs> but you know what? I can't do that because I know that, that ex that's what will happen to me too. I like in Micah 4.4, 4, I'll just read this. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Well, that happened during Solomon's time, but here it's speaking further on. In the latter days, there will be peace again. And uh, After the time of Solomon, they never had any more peace. All the way up to the time of Christ, they didn't have peace even when Christ was living there. Under Roman rule, they were under uh, the Babylonian rule, then the uh, Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, just constantly under somebody, and oh, you know, nothing was really ever their own. And, but did you see what Micah said about the uh, sitting under the trees where the fruit is there, and the fig tree, and the vine? Got to get from that. Now we uh, finish up the chapter there, First uh, Kings 4, says in verse 28, uh, whoa, 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 I better go back to 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Well, right there explains all the fruitfulness going on. Uh, well, I mean, when you've got that type of a military, but you're in a peaceful situation... Yeah, a lot of horse stuff to deal with. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Wasn't there something about not having a bunch of horses? <laughs> oh, no. Wasn't there? A, didn't God say don't do that? Yeah. Um, Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen and seventeen will do. God is so good. His law is good too. Deuteronomy 17.16 says moreover, he's talking about the king. When you have a king over you, right? You guys remember that. He shall not multiply horses for himself. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never again return that way. 
he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Well, uh, yeah, he has military strength. Maybe that's one deterrent of all the enemies. That would be the human way of thinking it. And it is a deterrent. I think it's the best. We certainly, as a nation, need military. Because the moment you take any kind of your arsenal away, and you start diminishing, you are weak. And don't you know that the enemy out there is watching every movement? So you must have that. Oh boy. We are now considered much weaker than we were. Yeah. Believe and that's what he wanted to do. It's, it, yeah. Very rapidly. So it's interesting, you know, you've got uh, these stalls. Now Second Chronicles nine twenty five it says only four thousand some either think it's uh, you know one of those copy errors you know in in writing down the word is there but it's somewhere along the lines and there are words that are almost identical there's one for arbame for 40 and arba for four get it mixed up and it's just like zeros one's one zero out of place and boom or it could be the number of the horses that were in the stables uh, 40,000 horses and each one has a stall in the stables there's 10 in each one of the stables and you have 40 of those then you would have or I'm getting my zeros mi- mixed up now I never was good at math but you see what I'm, I'm meaning here we this probably means 40,000 which is a lot of horses they weren't a nation that really was into horses before, and all of a sudden they get that. What's that? Well, just the mention of them going down to Egypt. That's where the horses came from. That's right. The Egyptian horses, where you get them, that's where you go. Well, that's where God told them not to do that. That's right. We read that last week, right? She liked the horses. That's what they <laughs> So, uh, you've got a cavalry here. Uh, chariots, it, it will mention, I don't think we read a verse on that yet, it's coming up, but chariots had been in use for some time. But cavalry was a brand, it was like a new uh, invention in, in ancient warfare. The Scythians were the ones that started it, and then after them was the Assyrians, and others followed suit to actually have cavalries. Well, guess what? <laughs> Solomon follows that pattern, and it's quite impressive. Uh, we, we read that uh, there are uh, chariots. Uh, Do we read that? 40,000 stalls of horses. For his chariots, yeah. Uh, which they, you know, they fought the enemy all the time, the Philistines and such, and they, you know, really, the Israelites didn't really have chariots, so to speak. Uh, it seems that Solomon 
actually ignored the warnings that were in Deuteronomy, and we caught that right off the bat. We know about it. Well, he multiplied horses, and he went to Egypt, and he multiplied wives, and God yet gives him peace that he doesn't deserve all that time. It's a build-up over time, but, uh, you know, uh, the deputies there are providing for his food, and, you know, he has people everywhere serving him, and he has to draft people in. And you remember earlier that I said there's a word that sticks out, and I didn't uh, get to it very good. I didn't mention it at all, really, but it was forced labor. We didn't say anything about that. And really, I'd like to articulate on that a little more. But really, it really comes into play in chapter 5 and then in chapter 9. And you can say, wait a minute, you're not supposed to make Israelites slaves. And they really didn't. There is a forced labor, and there are slaves, but they're not Israelites. And uh, I'll get more technical next week when we get into chapter 5. But they, uh, there are people that he's going to send out, and he's going to send them out for a month. And there's going to be relays, and then two months they go home. That doesn't sound like slaves to me. But he gets people, uh, like uh, in chapter 5, he's going to mention uh, 30,000 of them, 30,000 men that go and they go to get, uh, like, for instance, the wood and Lebanon. And it's like drafting them. It's like drafting in an army, but they're paid for it. And they get to go home two months. That's not too bad. Okay, but they don't really have a choice. Yeah, (laughs) but... Yeah, but it, it is a good thing because they're getting a great offer. And they're going to build the temple. And it's going to take a lot of people to do that. And he says, okay, uh, you know, or they could have just started hiring people. But the way the system is set up, you get this immediately. And such and such, who and, you know, whoever all these guys are, and you get this together and you send them out. Here's what we're going to do. They're really getting paid. And then they're going to have time off. Uh, so it's not like any kind of slave labor, although there are slaves that are in Israel, and there are people that are not true Israelites that are a part of that. But they're going to be treated good. Uh, and you know what? God never really denounces slavery. If you did it in a Christian way, what would be wrong with it? Actually, I work eight hours a day, and I'm owned by the state for those eight hours. But I get to come home at night. But I go, and I can choose not to show up the next day, and I can. But I've been given some time that I can take and still get paid. Yeah, that's one. Of, that's another that's thing. Have they, have they pushed for that one yet? No, I haven't heard a thing about it. Um, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. As long as we're a Republican state, you won't have to worry about it. Yeah. We lose Parsons and. Yeah, so far we've been very blessed. You compare us to a lot of other states, mm-hmm. and boy, it's a shambles still yet. 
But we have been very blessed. I uh, thank God. And He definitely blessed uh, Solomon and all the people. And He used a lot of wisdom in this, but He went against God's wisdom and His law. And do you remember Psalms 20, verse 7? Some trust in chariots and some in horses. I think you were thinking of that, weren't you, over there, Debbie, well ago? Yeah, we had it down here, so it was, I mean, it was just... He wasn't trusting the Lord on that one. Yeah. He didn't really need all this, did he? But we will make mention of the name of the Lord our God. We don't trust in that. Uh, but yet, I mean, our nation is not a theocratic nation, it, and it must protect itself. It must be a nation of military means, or otherwise you don't exist. When our, when our That's the way of man. When was first set up, the only real thing that the federal government was supposed to do was to protect us from protect outsiders. Us. Exactly. That's it. That's I woke up thinking about that. The one job of the federal government is to secure our borders. That's it. That's all they have to do. That's right. They are not to be getting into education. They are not to be getting into our private lives or ordering vaccines. They never had the right of that. As a matter of fact, the Constitution says that to back it up. That's all they have to do. That's their only job. Yeah. The Constitution is over anybody who leads in this nation. It is the rule. Boy, if they scaled that government all the way to just taking care of our borders. Military. Yep. Our yep. taxes would drop like a rock. Yep. <laughs> Bingo. Oh, they had the best. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'll tell you, I don't know, it's after seven, so we'll just pick this up and then go into five. All of this kind of works together, but it's about his wisdom and all the things that he did. All of his psalms and his uh, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs that he wrote, and uh, he, was, he had more wisdom than any man in the whole wide world. Nobody could match his wisdom. What a picture of Christ. Wow. What a time that was. I mean, that sounds like some kind of la-la land. You know, it's, it doesn't seem... Yeah, but seem... you know, everybody knows the story of the two prostitutes and their babies. Everybody. It's like... Do, don't they? You know, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't ever have to have ever picked up a Bible. You know the story about Solomon and the prostitutes. Well, I'm not sure everybody knows they were prostitutes, but they know there was a baby. Yeah, yeah. Two women. Cut the baby two in two. Moms. They, they know that little story. Two moms that were fighting over yep. their wife. Did he do justice? Yes. Did he do mercy? Mm -hmm. Did he do grace? Did he do love? <laughs> he had all of that wrapped up there, and it was all God-given. Let's pray. Father, great God, thank you for this picture of the kingdom that is to come. And as amazing as that was with sinful man, we know with you leading and we being in glorious bodies and no chance to sin, that that time that is to come is going to be the golden age. 
that has never existed, but we do see at time that it did do some semblance to what it is to be like whenever one is underneath your rule and reign. And what you can do as far as abundant blessings are concerned and material and physical and food and water and all the things that was needed, you took care of. You're a providential God and you showed it there. And that's why we can bank on it that you say and you promise and then you come through on it. Just to give us a picture is enough for us to believe that you are going to come through with what you said. In Jesus' name, amen.